Unless you've made a serious mistake, you are currently listening to a free excerpt of the committee program with me, Arun Chaudhary. Our show contains lots more global politics, and you can become a member at fans.fm slash committee to receive our full YouTube show, audio, plus other exclusive content. That's fans.fm slash committee. And be sure to check out our YouTube show every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Namiki Konst YouTube channel. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to the committee program. Today we're discussing climate change and climate justice with three great panelists put together by the show's own Julia Doubleday. And we're actually combining Smart Club and Deep Dive into one thing that we're going to call Smart Dive. Uh, and we'll have to rebrand that later because that's terrible. Julia, tell us what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, thank you, Arun. Thank you for your professional branding advice. I know that's um, where you spent your what entire I do. career. And it really shows, yeah. Um, so as we all know, climate change is an existential threat to humanity and indeed to life on Earth as we know it. Despite the escalating dangers posed by fossil fuel usage, the globe is continuing to accelerate that usage and has so far failed to join together in the kind of solidarity we would need to, in order to even begin confronting this massive challenge. As we talk about climate change, we also need to talk about climate justice. How are we going to convert the world that we live in now into a fossil-free world? And how do we do it so that we aren't harming the already marginalized? How do we do it without continuing to embrace a model of unlimited growth and unsustainable extractivism? And how do we ensure that developed countries do their fair share of work while developing countries are able to progress in a sustainable way? With us today to join our discussion are Thea Ria Francos. She's a DSA member and activist, the author of Resource Radicals from Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador, and a co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. We also have Katan Joshi, author of Windfall, Unlocking a Fossil-Free uh, fossil Future. Uh, he's going to be speaking to us about uh, wind energy and sustainable energy. He's from Australia, right now residing in Norway. And we have Harjit Singh, who's the Senior Advisor to the Climate Action Network International and a Strategic Advisor on something called the Fossil Fuel Nonproliferation Treaty Project. We're going to ask him about that. Uh, and he is living in New Delhi. So uh, thank you all for being here with us today. I we were joking beforehand how this is definitely going to be sort of a feel-good panel because, you know, it's not like climate change is the biggest policy, political, and communications slow-motion disaster of our time. <laughs> yes, we like to keep it light on the show. Um, so first, I wanted to talk to each of you and turn a little bit about your own expertise. Um, so, Thea, I want to start with you. Uh, in your book, Resource Radicals, you explore something that's really interesting and really volatile that's happening on the left in Ecuador right now, which is the opposition between two groups on the left that were formally allied. Um, so on the one hand, you have what you call uh, radical resource nationalists. These are people who uh, want to nationalize the resources in Ecuador and share those profits among the public, particularly among the poor, expand uh, social programs, alleviate poverty. And on the other hand, you have people who have become anti-extractivists. So people are saying, you know, actually, even if the money from these natural resources, these unrenewable natural resources are going back into our community, it's still damaging in the long term and it's still dispossessing indigenous people. So can you tell us a little bit about this conflict, what it means for Ecuador, what it means for the left uh, in the years to come? Yeah, um, I can. So I think, you know, the, the best point of entry here would be just to say that there are a lot of things wrong with resource extraction. And what I mean by that is that there are a lot of things to focus on if you're criticizing or resisting or in opposition to extraction in the global South, right? Kind of particularly um, and in Latin America um, in this case. So, you know, one problem with resource extraction is its long links to colonialism, to racial capitalism, to an unequal global order, right? Where the, uh, the harms and the exploitation are in one part of the world and the profits and revenues kind of accrue elsewhere, right? And that's a very classic left critique of extraction that I think still has a lot of purchase today. Uh, but there's also a different critique of extraction, which is that it harms the environment, particularly ecosystems, and also violates indigenous territorial rights, right? And so if that is your primary problem with extraction, 
then you're not looking to um, nationalize extraction or to sort of take it over in a worker cooperative or to have it state owned or something like that. You're actually looking to end extraction altogether. And those kind of lead in different policy directions, um, in different political directions. And what I looked at in, in the book um, and, and, and sort of beyond that in, in my research and, and activist work is how these positions came to divide the left to, to an extent, in some places more than others, in Ecuador particularly, uh, in the first decade and a half of, or so of, of this millennium, right, and, and with continued reverberations in the present. Um, and we could get into all of the reasons why, but I will kind of lay them out very simply uh, for our purposes, which is that in uh, around the turn of, of this millennium, there was a global commodity boom. And we're actually about to enter another one. Maybe we will talk about that because it's going to have very devastating consequences if policies aren't, aren't changed rather quickly um, across the global south. Um, so there was a commodity boom that was in large part driven by industrialization in China. And what this meant is that there was a lot of raw material extraction and expansion of extraction, right? And so this posed new harms to, to communities. At the same time, the left was in power in a historic and new way across Latin America. Scholars call this the, the pink tide. And so what this meant is that left-wing governments in many cases were presiding over the rapid expansion of extraction. And this posed new challenges and dilemmas for the left. Like, you know, do we continue with extraction, but just make sure that society benefits from it? from it more, or do we chart a path to a post-extractive future? And those are, you know, I won't kind of uh, give you the spoiler and, and plot exactly how that sort of turned out, but, but those were those were the kind of positions in the debate. And I just want to say that personally, they really expanded my view of what the politics of extraction are um, and what different radical responses might be, um, and also what tactics communities can use to, to stall or obstruct extractive projects uh, on their territories. Perfect. Yeah, I think um, we definitely want to delve a little bit more into what this has meant, you know, um, in Ecuadorian politics. As we know, a right winger was just elected there as President Guillermo Lasso, uh, and that may have uh, in part or even in large part been due to this split that was happening in the left and the feeling among indigenous communities and environmental activists that they were not being represented even by the further left parties. Um, I mean, based so on experience, is the assessment. Yeah, so, based to, on experience, yes. Um, so let's throw it over to Catan. Um, you know, in your book, Windfall, you're describing people who are very upset with renewables coming to their hometowns, to their communities, uh, in particular having wind turbines built um, near their homes. You talk about this conspiracy that, that gained a lot of traction, which is wind turbine syndrome, the idea that a wind turbine near your house is going to somehow cause you to have uh, this whole group of medical issues. Um, so in your book, you talk about how important it is to basically bring the community in to um, radical change in our energy system. So can you talk a little bit about that? You know, what does it look like to responsibly um, start to build capacity for renewable energy? Yeah, this was a this was a really interesting journey for me because I started out, uh, you know, I did a science degree. Uh, I my my job was actually initially in wind energy. I started out as a data analyst. You know, I was sitting there like working on spreadsheets and doing like night shifts. You know, monitoring these wind farms. So pretty far from, I guess, the social and cultural side of wind power. But uh, as soon as I started reading and writing about this issue, um, I found that my position as in my actual career, you know, started creeping towards um, more public-facing stuff concerning the development of wind farms. And that was because what was happening in Australia uh, in sort of around like 2010 to 2013-ish uh, was that more and more communities were objecting to wind farms, not just on the grounds of aesthetics uh, or concerns about environmental impacts like um, collisions with birds, etc. I think people would have heard of a lot of these things before. Uh, but very specifically and very loudly uh, on the grounds that they were worried about their health. Uh, so they were saying that the low-frequency noise uh, emanations from a, from the operation of a wind farm were causing a, a pretty wide range of health effects. And, you know, this is a phenomenon that has cropped up in uh, for many different technologies in the past. Uh, we've seen it for power lines. We've seen it for Wi-Fi, uh, mobile phone towers. Uh, there's often really significant health concerns around any technology that has a sort of ultra like uh, 
you know, electromagnetic or sonic uh, noise type vibration thing coming out of it. Uh, and so, you know, the way this was understood, including by myself, uh, when it first started coming out was through a scientific frame, which is essentially, this is pseudoscience. And uh, all we need to do is communicate to the public uh, what the real science is, and then everything will be fine. Uh, and of course, that's definitely not how it played out. What happened was, uh, this actually became a political issue. So the government at the time was, of course, very strongly. Um, so the, the government um, from 20, 2007 to 2013 was a centre-left government. And then that switched over to a conservative government. And they sort of weaponized this wind turbine syndrome issue uh, and sort of tried to catalyze it and make it a little bit hotter. And um, they sort of, the government actually became quite heavily involved and commissioned a range of new scientific studies uh, to, I guess, in some way to look into it, but also in the sense it sort of worsened it. Um, and the reason was, is that it wasn't addressing the root cause of the issue, uh, which was that a lot of these wind farms were being developed very unjustly. So what was happening is that a few neighbours around those wind farms were getting lease payments um, and nobody else was getting paid in any way, shape or form. Uh, occasionally, like the local community would get, you know, a thousand bucks for the to build a new community hall or whatever. Um, but the benefits flowing from basically converting the wind resource into electrical power and selling it uh, were not flowing to uh, community members who were impacted in some way by the presence of the wind farm, uh, whether that was an actual impact in terms of like audible noise or whether it was sort of an emotional or cultural impact, which is through the change of the landscape around them. Uh, and so what began to happen is, is as soon as projects started springing up where wind farms were actually partly or wholly own, owned by communities, uh, this phenomenon started to fade. Uh, and that was a really significant and noticeable uh, pattern. Of course, the majority of wind farms in Australia were still uh, wholly owned by corporations. But when I started writing my book, I started writing about that specific issue because it was something that I just always wanted to write about. Uh, and as soon as I started you know, writing these first chapters, I realized like, okay, this is actually an energy justice issue, not a, not an issue about pseudoscience and science communication. Uh, so I basically changed the first half of my book to make it about energy justice through the specific frame uh, of the development of wind farms in Australia. And I moved to Norway about two years ago and precisely the same thing has happened here in Norway. Uh, a bunch of companies have started building wind farms with very little concern uh, for the involvement or participation or the ownership of local communities around those projects. And it's a huge problem. I, I, I was looking at some really stunning data the other day. Uh, it looks at the popularity of different energy types in Norway. Uh, and, you know, Norway is a massive oil producing country, um, but oil itself has not been particularly popular in Norway. Um, and just in the past year, what has happened is the popularity of wind power, onshore wind power has just dropped precipitously. And actually, the popularity of oil has has gone up at the same time, uh, to the extent that um, you know probably by the time this year's survey data for that um, specific survey comes out, oil will be more popular than onshore wind power here in Norway. So it's an astonishing phenomenon, and the consequences are very very significant uh, for an energy transition that relies heavily on the construction of um, large scale new generation in rural areas. Right. Yeah, no, that's I think in a lot of cases, when you see these um, conspiracy theories cropping up, it does tend to um, they tend to catch on if there is an environment of mistrust. So even if the people who um, are the progenitors of that conspiracy theory, like the, the anti climate science people, in most cases, these are people who are very powerful um, they found a, a fruitful environment for conspiracy just in that so many people have a, such a mistrust of the government at this point. Um, so I think that um, segues pretty well into uh, Harjit, what, what you have talked about, um, you know, on a global scale, making sure that the global North is um, doing their part to alleviate this burden that they've largely placed on the rest of the world. Um, you've also talked about how woefully inadequate the Paris Climate Agreement is uh, in your work, like I mentioned, includes this project, the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Agreement. So can you tell us about that project and, and also about the, the weaknesses of the Paris Climate Agreement and what are some things we need to do to, to address those weaknesses? 
Sure. So, you know, when we now talk about uh, climate change and as um, efforts that global community is making, you know, Paris Agreement is right at the center. And when U.S. Um, you know decided uh, not to be part of it, you know, the whole the whole world was shaken. And now when U.S. is back, uh, you could see the world celebrating. But what we have not yet analyzed that it's not enough. Yes, U.S. was very much welcome because being the biggest historical emitter, you wanted it back and Paris Agreement is the agreement uh, around climate change. But the reality is, even if we uh, implement all the commitments that have been made, we are moving towards more than three degree warmer world. At one degree temperature rise, look at the kind of disasters we are facing around the world, not only in the global south. Of course, global south is far more disadvantageous in terms of its location and resources. Uh, but global north is also facing, you know, range of disasters. Talk about sea level rise and cyclones and floods. So if Paris Agreement is not enough, why, why we have to, uh, you know, go and talk about a new agreement? People must be wondering, you know, it took us decades to reach where we are. But in reality, Paris Agreement does not mention coal, oil and gas. It does not talk about the supply side of the problem. It keeps saying reduce your emissions unless you hit the fossil fuel industry hard, unless you follow what the United Nations Environment uh, Program report talks about, you know, reducing uh, production at the rate of 6% until 2030 to bend the curve. Unless that happens, you can't do it. The other bigger challenge that Paris Agreement uh, has or the gap it has, it does talk about the cake of responsibility, the whole cake, which is very convenient for uh, for for political masters, you know, because it doesn't really talk about how to cut the cake, right? So you can keep saying you do it, you do it, let's do it, and that's exactly the reason we have not done enough for for years and decades because we avoided the how part of it. We kept talking about the what part of it. Now this is where. Uh, the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty initiative brings the political economy of fossil fuel industry right at the center. It talks about how to cut the cake, you know, who should take how much responsibility, who does how much and when, what support is needed, who pays for it, and what we need is an equity-based roadmap. And how do you help economies uh, developing economies who are now dependent on coal, oil and gas. Uh, you can't just ask them to shut it down overnight. You need to support them with a just transition. Of course, Saudi Arabia needs no support, but Nigeria does, Uganda does. So how do you create a roadmap? That's exactly this treaty initiative is all about, which Paris Agreement does not talk about at all. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 please. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, basically from everything you're saying, it seems that Paris just has no specifics and no enforceability. It's just sort of a piece of paper that's like, let's stop climate change. And then everyone signed it. And <laughs> that's kind of it. <laughs> Jazz hands. Well, it brought the world together because, yes. but it brought the world, world together to a lowest common denominator. Right. And not the kind of ambition that is needed to avert the climate crisis that we face now. Yeah, we're continuing. Right, it's like a we are the world the type effort. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, but but I think you all are hitting on the point, right? Which is that industries, multinational corporations, sort of are fighting this asymmetrically, while all these individual folks and individual nations, individual movements are taking more uh, of a piecemeal approach. And I think that also hurts because it means that industries are telling stories all the time while maybe folks in the movement are waiting for there to be elections or special moments uh, or times when, as Julia says, when people have a mistrust of authority, it's not going to fall on fertile ground. But all of you are working on something that is, you know, transnational in some way. So I want to talk about that. Thea, you know, you've written extensively about globalization. Like, what is the antidote to that? Uh, particularly, we'd love to talk about the plurinational organization that you are. And I was also very struck by the word uh, plurinational. Plurinational. Yeah, we didn't know that word. More learning. Plur plurinational. Oh, yeah. It's a <laughs> but it sounds like yeah, the kind of thing we should be talking very, about. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, so what's interesting is that those are at somewhat different scales, but but we can talk about them all together, right? So like globalization is what I think people tend to mean by the word globalization, which is kind of a slippery one, is this period of kind of post-Cold War reintegration of the global economy under the auspices of, of neoliberalism, of free trade, of market integration, et cetera. But, you know, I think that what I was touching on earlier uh, uh, maybe suggests, and, and maybe it's just worth saying more explicitly, that capitalism has always been like a globalizing project in a way, right? Like, so when we look at the slave trade, when we look at colonialism and conquest, there was never a moment where capitalism wasn't like trying to take over the world um, and, and aspiring to, to kind of that global hegemony. Um, uh, and then we can talk about what would alternatives to neoliberalism, neoliberal globalization look like. Um, and I think that there are thoughts on the right and the left, right? There's been discontent in various political circles about the current form that neoliberal globalization has taken. And a lot of that has really taken off actually during during this COVID pandemic, right? Where I think like a lot of the the, the vulnerabilities, the inequities, um, et cetera, of, of neoliberal globalization are, are, are even clearer than, than perhaps they, they were before. Um, and just to answer the other part, like plurinationalism is a very interesting concept that comes out of Latin American indigenous movements and cosmovisions and political projects, which is not per se about globalization, but is about um, uh, a critique of of, of really like the classic nation state in a way. And to say that like in a given state, within the boundaries of a given state, there might be multiple ethnicities um, and multiple nations, right? So when we look at indigenous peoples throughout the Americas, they tend to identify as a people or as a nation. And that is in and of itself is kind of a rejection of the idea that there's a homogenous national identity, right? And so plurinationalism has been key to indigenous struggles in the Americas for a couple of decades now, um, and has been one of the ways that they claim collective rights and territorial rights. Um, and then Sometimes that can happen in transnational, so that's like a third scale, right? Like sometimes there's coordination of indigenous groups across borders um, uh, and at, at that scale as well. So it, there's a lot, I don't want to, I don't know which direction we want to go here with all of that, but, but, um, but certainly a lot of what I've been looking at in my current research is the global supply chains for green technologies, uh, the new forms of extraction that we're seeing accompanying the energy transition, and and you know what a left and progressive response to that uh, might be. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think with this sort of um, race to the bottom politics of continually searching for the investment climate, uh, the business climate, where corporate actors are able to best abuse the land and people. It just creates this sort of prisoner. They call that fe investors feeling comfortable. Usually investors <laughs> feeling good. Yeah. So when that's your goal, you really have, um, you know, as Harjeev was mentioning with the Paris climate agreement, it just always turns into, well, you know, we, we can't change our policy because that's going to hurt us. And then they're just going to go do it somewhere else. So we do have this power dynamic where it's like the left is organizing nationally. Um, but whenever we win any victories, it's so easy for these transnational corporate actors to quickly offshore their operations or um, move to a place where labor isn't as organized. Um, so it just sort of puts this to all of us. Or it, worse, it, with, Bolivia, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly all over the world, if there is a place where, um, you know, resources are nationalized or there's any sort of movement to the far left, uh, the world bands together to sort of try to oust that government. So it really is just this um, uh, monster with a million heads. It's like no matter where you try to suppress it, it, it pops up somewhere else. So that's why I do think this work of this international solidarity um you know, it is so crucial. So one thing I think what all all of you have talked about is just sort of um how we need to reconceptualize what our economy and what our energy model looks like. Because right now, um, you know, I think there's still this concept for wealthier people in the West that like, we're just going to replace the gasoline powered car with the lithium battery car. And then it's going to be a one for one exchange. Um, and obviously, you know, I, I don't think that's going to be the case long term. So, uh, I'd like to just open it up to anyone who wants to speak to, you know, 
how do we transform uh, our system on a deeper level? Like what, what else do we need to do um, in order to have a just transition that doesn't end up with us continuing to just extract more and more non-renewable resources and end up in the exact same situation that we're in right now? If I can mention just one good example of that, uh, that you're talking about in Australia, uh, so there's a lot of rooftop solar PV, you know, this is uh, technology that's really burgeoned. Of course it has, you know, it's uh, ridiculously sunny in Australia uh, and it's also a wealthy country uh, and it's a country with high energy usage, you know, per person. Um, the average person in the average household use pretty ridiculously high levels of um, electricity. Uh, and so that's actually a pretty ripe market for the growth of solar. Uh, but what has happened, you know, I'm a, I'm a lifelong renter. Um, and I could never install solar, you know, when I lived in Australia, of course, I can't do it here either, but everyone lives in apartments uh, here in Oslo. Uh, but, you know, I, I really wanted to install uh, solar on my rooftop and um, everybody who had a house, who owned a house, they could, they could um, put solar onto their rooftops. Uh, and, you know, this really, I, I thought when I was reading and writing about this, I was like, how do we talk about this? What's the language for it? And it actually doesn't exist in Australia. There's no, there's no uh, common understanding or language about energy justice uh, and access to decarbonisation. Um, communities that clean up their air and communities that, that don't. Uh, and it's actually been a really noticeable contrast with um, American climate politics and the way American climate activists talk, because there actually does seem to be quite a, quite a smooth and well understood language about it. Um, but in Australia, people kind of just talk about uh, fairness or the fair go, and um, it doesn't really seem to click. It doesn't seem to be well understood. And as a consequence, what we're seeing in Australia is that access to decarbonisation and access to climate action uh, is really, really limited. Uh, by the time that technology like electric vehicles actually come to Australia, I suspected, it would, it, sadly, that it would just be the same. You know, whoever has a driveway uh, and can plug their electric car in gets to choose an electric car, and whoever doesn't won't which is just adds up to just being performative and not really climate, you know, unchanging behavior. Yeah. And, and also just sort of unjust in the sense that it doesn't go as fast as it could if it was a, a just transition. Accessible to even a right. small there's no portion collective, of the population. Yeah. There's no collective response and collective plan. It's just more individualized conversion of behaviors, which won't get us there fast enough. Which also leads to that condemnation of, you know, people who aspire to development. And obviously balancing that is a very tricky, is a very tricky thing. I mean, Harjeet, how do, how do people com communicate that, that, you know, the, the tension between those two things? I think one major shift and what, that's why we use the word transformation that we have to see when we are moving from fossil fuel based economies to now renewable energy. Let's understand the source of energy. We are, when we talk about renewable energy, it's a decentralized energy source. It's not concentrated in one geographical area, which means if the source is decentralized, the benefits and profits have to be decentralized. And what Ketan was saying on how do we make sure that now we develop new models of energy system. We have to talk about energy democracy. We have to talk about community-led, community-owned, decentralized energy systems where communities have that ownership. And once that happens, then we will be able to push back against what's what has already started happening right now that shells and exons of the world are going to become you know are going to take over renewable energy businesses this is exactly what we don't want to see so we are not just talking about transition we have to talk about transformation of energy systems and economies another aspect you know uh, what thea was saying we can't just keep drilling and mining e even now when we are moving towards a greener world by adopting renewable energy. We have to talk about bringing down emissions, uh, bringing down emissions through consumption. We have to talk about degrowth, which is not a popular word. And you know, knowing that it's 100 companies who are responsible for more than 70% of cumulative emissions, this transformation is not going to be easy. Exactly what Julia, you were saying. It's about power dynamics. It's about the political economy. Who forces 
politicians to write that policy. So we have to talk about corporations who have not allowed this transition to happen and look at what, what has happened in the US and many parts um, in the, of the global north. The disinformation campaign that did not allow science to even reach people the way it should have decades ago. Yeah, I'm glad you used the word degrowth. I've actually been learning a bit about that. There is a book by um, Jason Hickel. It's called Less is More, I think. More is less. Less is more, I think. Um, anyway, it was really fantastic. Uh, it was about degrowth, and it really helped me understand you know, the philosophy behind it. Um, I think what people maybe misunderstand about degrowth is that they're feeling like it's just going to be this um, horrible thing to have to consume less. But right now, the way our economy is structured is there's just so much waste. It's so inefficient. We can build a system that makes more sense. I mean, even just the way that suburbia, I'm in suburbia right now, the way suburbia is structured is totally crazy. I mean, like there's no way to walk anywhere. Um, you know, I think people like to live in walkable communities. It's structured so that you have to own a car. But if we're talking about these really radical transformations that have to happen anyway, uh, it makes sense for us to think about, well, how do we do it in a way that's the, the most efficient? I mean, some people, um, you know, they may not they may not be like bleeding heart leftists like me that care about the global poor. They may, though, be responsive to the idea of like, look, this system is just inefficient. Like if you're even if you're just like a, a math like, person, like a math and physics person, you should be able to I don't understand like what I see. Yeah. how wasteful it is. I mean, things like. Um, because of globalization, you know, picking apples in one place and then sending them halfway across the world to be washed because it's cheaper to do it, you know, in Southern Africa than in Europe and then sending them back to Europe. I mean, these are things that actually happen. It's totally nuts. Um, so yeah, I think, I think degrowth does not have to mean this really horrible future where we're all like wearing rags and walking everywhere. But I think, you know, public transit and having not, instead of fast fashion, sustainable fashion, all of these things are actually, I think, improvements to everyone's quality of life. And that wasn't a question. So let me <laughs> steer, it, steer it back over to Thea. Um, you know, I, I saw that you had, had written a bit about globalization. I do think the left has kind of an issue with um, – the, the branding of globalization and development. You know, there are these very ambiguous words where it can encompass a lot of things, but it sounds really nice. Both of those words sound really good. Uh, and when we use those words, even when we're critiquing them, mostly we don't say, you know, corporate-led globalization or corporate-led uh, development, which essentially is, is what these things are. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what does quote-unquote development look like uh, in a country where the benefits aren't going to the people who live there? Yeah, um, big question, because it's a very contested term in, in Latin America, which is where I would sort of draw on, though I'm curious what folks, uh, the other panelists think about, you know, uh, how these concepts are debated elsewhere in, in the world. Um, in Latin America, I think kind of drawing on what I said earlier, there's been dueling positions on the left. They're not always in conflict, but just that there's multiple of them, right? And so I think one one idea is development should be reclaimed to make it more equitable, uh, more broad-based, uh, more environmentally sustainable, that development isn't the problem. The idea of like progress or even growth isn't the problem. The problem is like the inequitable structure of it, right? So that's kind of one position. I'm simplifying radically, of course. But, you know, another position, and this has increased over the years and has to do with the anti-extractive activism that I mentioned, is a kind of rejection of development to court, right? Like that development is an imposition of Western modernity, that it's like coterminous with the history of colonialism, that development always means like infinite and unsustainable growth and often with very unequal ecological and, and social impacts, right? And, and so I think that, you know, I, I, I'm not going to say what my position is, because I wouldn't say I have like a neat position on this, right? And I think that it, there, there are, um, I, I think that there are valid points raised by both sort of left positions on development, but I definitely agree that 
planetary limits, um, ecological well-being, like should be like at the center of how we think about either development or alternative, you know, alternatives to to development and the sort of older version that was even popular on the left of just like endless kind of growth and development is not is it's like literally not sustainable and and often that endless growth is part of the production of inequality as well in the first place. Right. Um, yeah, I wonder, Harjit, if you could also speak to, you know, India specifically, I think, has this history of being um, really unevenly developed with uh, groups of marginalized people co consistently being displaced, uh, you know, particularly for these like large dam projects where projects, um, yeah. there are massive groups of indigenous people who live sort of outside the modern economy who are then relocated into slums in major cities and the UN or whoever's constructing the dam treats this as some sort of win because now they're, you know, they're part of the formal economy. Uh, meanwhile, they've been totally dispossessed of land that they may have owned for centuries. So um, definitely interested in hearing more about the energy transition in India and what may be going on with, um, you know, the, the, uh, need to both install solar and install wind, but also having this history of um, not being mindful of people and their land. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I'll, I'll pick up from what, what Thea said. Whether you talk of India um, or other major developing economies, uh, we have blindly followed the Western model of development. And we did not put ecology at the heart of it, even when our culture uh, was so rich and has been in harmony with nature. Unfortunately, we keep uh, talk and, and glorify our past, but we are not really learning from the past. And we are following the model of development, which has brought so many issues in the global north. And now the whole world is suffering. Uh, Julia, you, talk, you talked about the... Uh, whether it's a food waste or the kind of you know mindless uh, waste that we see across the board. Now, when we followed the same model, we also did not look at how our societies were structured, what kind of development we need. We also went for mega projects, uh, contrary to what Gandhi said, that the development has to start from villages. You have to make villages self-sustainable. And now we talk about circular economies, you know, just because we package them really well. That's that's what Gandhi meant. You know, how do you make sure that each village is sustainable? Yes, interdependent, you know, on, on the larger economy. But how do you make sure that everybody gets a, the benefit from that, that economy? And we, we did not do that. And as you said, we actually saw massive displacement because we... In India, decades ago, felt that development first and then we need to tackle inequality. And probably this development is going to take us out of, uh, you know, the, the vicious poverty cycle. And we adopted that World Bank promoted trickle down approach. But look at the reality when in the US we talk about 1% versus 99%, we are no different. We also have the same 1% versus 99% when majority of people do not have resources. Handful of people are controlling more than 50% of the wealth of this country. Just handful of them. That's the kind of economy we have built. And that's why people who have been uh, socially marginalized have not been part of that uh, mainstream development. And now with climate change, I think it really gives us an opportunity to go back and relook at the model of development. That's another thing that we are not talking about in India and even around the world. What is that model of development where ecology is at the center, where equity is at the center, where we need to make sure that the, that the benefits are equally shared and equitably shared in, in the society. And that's, that's not happening. And again, when I was giving the example of you know, how, what kind of energy systems, here also we are hearing stories of large solar parks um, where people are being displaced now because of these massive renewable energy projects. So it's the same model of development, although now it's going to be slightly greener, but that's not the way to go. And India has a lot of potential uh, to actually come up with its own model of development. But I don't think we are there yet. And that's why the new discourse of just transition, new discourse of how the world should look like, 
or what we say another world is possible we can also say another india is possible and another indonesia is possible another malawi is possible right so i think that's what we have to talk about and at the heart of that is kind of unifying these issues with other issues of employment dignity productivity etc uh, because maybe exactly. it's actually taking the issue, maybe having the issue of climate change be its own thing has been doing us a disservice uh, for decades and decades. I mean, Katan, I would love to a- ask you, you know, in America in politics, we say when you're explaining, you're losing. Uh, and something struck me when you're talking about the conspiracy theorists taking over where you're like, but we explained, you know, what are sort of other, you know, just what have you seen communications wise be a failure and a success uh, with the people as ironic as the Australians, you know, I hope something's <laughs> sticky down there. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I don't know whether Australians are ironic or not. Um, <laughs> I guess, like... <laughs> Coming up next week, Made deep dive. stereotypes <laughs> from Iran. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, in a funny sense, it's actually quite a, quite a literal culture. Um, and that's a really huge problem, right? So uh, a really good example of what you're talking about, the problem with explaining, is that the Australian government, of course, um, same government that I mentioned before that got elected in 2013, uh, very closely linked with the fossil fuel industry in Australia and around the world, and very explicit champions of more coal and gas mining. Uh, and they've sort of given up on building new coal-fired power stations, but they're building new gas-fired power stations. Uh, and they want to keep the coal ones open as long as possible, you know, well past the deadlines for, for climate goals. Um, and then, you know, they sort of sell this to the Australian public on the grounds of going slow uh, and not really harming the economy too much when you take climate action. Uh, all of this, of course, is a, is a sort of very thin front uh, for increasing the revenues of the fossil fuel industry and, and you know, kind of standard evil stuff like that. Um, but then the challenge, of course, comes up is, well, how do you how do you explain that? How do you arm people to understand uh, with uh, a knowledge of the kind of rhetorical tools that the government uses to justify what they're doing? Uh, and it's something I've worried about and focused on for a couple of years now. Uh, but I don't think I've done a particularly good job of it, to be honest, because what has been you know, 10 times more effective has been uh, very simply global meetings or like conferences or just um, big global events that basically compares Australia to the to the progress of the rest of the world because no one's doing any explaining there. That's just the world, you know, another part of the world or um, a, a major organisation says or does something um, and it's just automatically compared to Australia. And a good example is this week, the International Energy Agency, you know, not particularly well known uh, for being like, you know, leftist or activist on climate change. Uh, you know, they, they actually represented, you know, oil companies, you know, back in the day. Uh, they came out with this uh, pathway, potential pathway to get to net zero by 2050. Uh, and one of the key parts of their report was they were saying you can't build any new fossil fuel infrastructure. You know, you just can't you can't go exploring for new coal mines or go exploring for new gas um, and that's such a huge part of what Australia does. Um, and of course, they sort of um, like that message got mulled a bit to no new fossil fuel infrastructure. And on that very same day, the prime minister of Australia announced that he is funding a new gas fired power station, um, a, a really, really big new gas fired power station uh, in Australia. And that just did the explaining, you know, that was just like this very conservative uh, global energy body being like, well, we can't really do this kind of stuff anymore if you want to stay below 1.5 degrees. Uh, and the Australian government just kind of went like, oh, okay, well, um, well, here's a gas-fired power station that we're building. Um, and so all we really need to do as communicators is just go point that out and go, look, you know, that's um, that just contravenes uh, the set of guidelines that we need to do to achieve these goals. So uh, it's not, um, I don't actually have any good answers, unfortunately, beyond uh, just keep highlighting the like disjunctions between uh, what they're really like the worst, the worst they're doing um, and the more progressive, you know, I, it feels so weird to call the international energy agency progressive, but relative to the Australian government, uh, they really are. Um, so yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough challenge. I, there's no good answer, unfortunately. Yeah. I think you hit on something important that Thea and I had also discussed earlier, which is, um, you know, expanding our definition of climate denial to not just be 
people who openly say, I don't believe in climate change, but people who are not acting um, like this is an existential threat. So if you come out and you say climate change is real, that's the bare minimum. But beyond that, like, what are your actions sort of betraying about your beliefs? So like Obama continuing to throughout his administration, expand fossil fuel infrastructure and bragging about making the U.S. a net exporter of oil. Um, fracking worldwide, yeah. Yeah, fracking, fracking worldwide. Um, all of that stuff sort of betrays that he and maybe his administration, the people around him, didn't totally understand the climate science or they weren't listening to the climate science in any case. Um, Thea, would you like to uh, comment on, you know, how do we... How do we communicate more effectively the scale of the crisis? Um, because I think right now, again, what's come up, I think, again and again in this language of globalization and development and belief in climate change, it always seems to be this like ambiguity, uh, the Paris Climate Agreement as well, as uh, and um, uh, what do you call it, information asymmetry between the public and our governments. Yeah, um, just to expand on that, the new denialism piece a little bit um, absolutely agree that like ideas of like bridge fuels or like all of the above energy strategies, which you were referring to with, with Obama um, uh, are, are a big form of climate denial. The idea that we can keep fracking gas and having methane leaks and like still be taking action on climate change. But I think that your second part of your question also, I think shows a different realm of denial that is picking up pace, which is, which is the which is not doing enough, right? Which is different than saying climate change doesn't exist, or even different than saying we can keep extracting and burning gas. It's saying like we can just spend paltry amounts, or not really think about global redistribution, or not think about the role of the public sector in scaling up these technologies. Like we can just leave it to the market, right? That is climate denialism. It's science denialism. Um, Though I will say, kind of going back to something Kenton said earlier, I don't always think that like combating denialism on the terms of denial versus belief are very effective. Like I think that people tend to like hunker down into their beliefs and it's really not about a, an epistemological issue. I think it's more a reflection of power relations and people's prior experiences, negative or positive with, with the energy transition, et cetera. So I think that's a terrain that's more fruitful for the left than just saying, believe the science, right? Which is just not an effective, in my view, communicative or mobilizing strategy. Um, in terms of communicating the scale of the crisis, I am torn about that. Um, and I wonder whether talking about like the, the like, this is a planetary crisis, it's like terrible, it's we're nearing apocalypse. Like, I don't know that that, like, I think that there are ways that that can motivate people, especially when we have like, you know, sort of, uh, you know, extreme weather events and people have personal experience with the, the polling with, like, says you know, it the, doesn't the, work. Right. That's everyone I, will yeah, tell I, you I, that I, scaring doesn't work. But I don't believe that's true. Yeah, I, I just I'm don't still believe on it. Team scare the shit out of people. But that's just. Me. Yeah, me too. But <laughs> yeah. but but I am here to say what Thea is saying absolutely is borne out by people who write papers about this stuff. Yeah. And I also think that like fear is not always politically productive. A colleague of mine and co-author on the Planet to Win book, Daniel Donna Cohen, did a long study of Hurricane Sandy and like moments of crisis and like they can lead in left directions or they can lead in not left directions because fear is very malleable, right? And so people just being scared shitless, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this. Uh, so anyway, people being very scared. Uh, okay, cool. Um, uh, doesn't always make them available for progressive solidarity. And, you know, it, it really depends on a host of other factors. But what I think can be just as effective or maybe more effective um, than just like we're an emergency is to say like, we can confront this climate crisis, we can transition to a cleaner, greener energy transition, and your life can get better, right? And we can re repair this historic injustice. And we can deal with issues of racial and class segregation, right? And we can do them at the same time. And it's not just better for like the political coalition, because it draws people in who maybe climate is not their primary concern. Um, but, um, but it also, I think, like just reveals the fact that there are multiple pathways to decarbonize, right? And some of them address a whole host of other issues at the same time, like Harjeet and Kenton, you know, already alluded to. And some of them like keep our structures of inequality and domination and like swap out the fuel source. Um, 
And, you know, I think the, the latter is worth not just on social justice grounds, but also, as you were saying, Julie, on efficiency grounds. Like if we just do the energy transition in a narrow way, we keep in a lot of the sources of environmental harm um, baked in. Um, and, and so we have a chance to kind of address, I think, intersectionally multiple multiple problems at once, um, which grows grows the political coalition around it, uh, potentially at least. So if, if I may come in very briefly on that. So as Please, was, and we'll give you the last word. a similar challenge. And what we came up after a lot of thinking, we came up with three terms, which we felt and found very useful. So one, truth, transformation, and hope. And we have to weave all that in one sentence. So we have to speak truth to power, but we have to talk about transformation that is needed, which Thea, you also alluded to, and keeping the hope alive. So we don't want people to live in a hopeless situation. But when there is a climate emergency, we have to speak truth, right? So we thought these three terms were kind of good touchstones for us to craft those messages and also simple solutions. When you talk about local food, when you talk about shorter supply chains, these are very simple acts that people can take and they understand if they go for local and seasonal food with shorter supply chains, which means it can actually change not only their you know, health, but also the local environment and the larger economy. So how do we communicate simple solutions you know, as in response to the climate crisis? Right. Yeah. Um, I think you're touching on a lot of important things. And um, I do want to thank all three of you for being here. I could talk about this for like five hours, but I think we're coming up uh, on an hour. So um, thank you. And I'm just so honored that all three of you were able to join because we're big admirers of all of the work that you guys are doing. So keep fighting the good fights. And um, thanks again. And Thank next you. week, so we will be digging in to Spanish populist left-wing party Podemos, now that Pablo has cut his hair. Committee, we're committed.